Craig Alexander has been a force in triathlon for many years, and he's been one of the standouts in the sport, both as a great spokesman for what goes on in the sport and also for what he's done on the on the course. The guy's amazing. We caught up with him pre-COVID, and this is kind of like the pilot for the very first Life of Try podcast, and it was such a good chat that we wanted to bring it back. So he hasn't really... Uh, got into the chat about what's going on isolation etc because it just wasn't happening when we spoke to him but we wanted to bring this to you today because it's such a good chat and anything Crowy says is worth listening to so we go into all sorts of parts of his career that might not have been touched on before he's a great bloke really good to listen to must have interviewed him 10 times and every time I do I learn something from the guy Um, thanks to the good folks at triathlon magazine in Canada here's Craig Alexander Well, mate, uh, heady times at the moment in the world of triathlon. There's a lot going on, uh, but let's just uh, have a, a little bit of chat about your good self. Still racing, saw you down at um, the Geelong 70.3. Um, hard to still get enthused and get involved? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I think when you're a competitive person, getting on the start line and racing is easy. Um, it's just the weeks and months leading up to that that can be harder these days for me with a few other things going on, but I still love to train. I mean, no one's forcing me to be out there. I love it. Um, I love the sport and, you know, this is my 25th or or 26th year. I've lost count now, but it's been a lot of years racing as a pro athlete. So it's been a long time and, you know, Geelong was my first race in nearly a year. So I was happy to get out there. And, you know, when I race these days, I still like to race high quality fields. You know, I'm not interested in doing any sort of testimonial sort of tour or I want to I want to race the good people that's what that's what motivates me that's what's always sort of got my juices flowing so um you know there's no question I'm not going to sit here and say that training and racing is my day-to-day priority like it was for nearly two decades um you know I'll be 47 in a few months and I've got a lot of other good things going on in my life most notably um on the personal front with family but a, a few other things um business related and sports business related so you know i don't just wake up um train is it um sorry is it hard to is it hard to let it go is it hard to let that you know you were so good for so long we used to call you the pros pro i remember is it hard to let that go uh yes and no i think there's no question you your identity becomes tied up in your results it's it's hard not for it to be the case i mean you know, it's the reason you get invited to go on podcasts. It's the reason you get invited to speak either in a corporate setting or at a school or at a junior club. Um, it's the reason you have the sponsorship portfolio that you have. It, it's because of your results, also because of who you are. It's not just your results. Hopefully, I think every athlete really strives to be the full package in terms of high performance, but you know, representing values that companies want to associate with. I think that's that's the goal and ultimately it is your profession. Um, and by definition, that means you make a living out of it. So, but I think the mental side of it, you know, for so long, you're almost a gun for hire. You, you get paid to win. Um, and the behaviors and routines and habits which form out of that mindset are hard to change overnight. So, to answer your question, it is tough and there's a transition period where I think you just need to understand 
what you're trying to get out of a race these days and, and why do I race these days? I mean, I don't, I don't have a schedule of 12 or 15 races. I, did, I think I did five races last year um, in total and that was a big year. I think the previous year I only raced three or four times and in 2017 it wasn't even that many because I had a broken collarbone. But, you know, I, I train to stay in shape and because I love to train. Also, my daughter is quite an accomplished young athlete, so I, I train with her. I, I love to do that and train with her group. Um, but with such a big aerobic base and such, I guess, a long-standing history of aerobic conditioning, it doesn't take me much to get in race shape. So I often do decide to jump in. But as I said, mate, it, back in you know in the glory days, if we want to call them that, I my whole year was structured around um, – racing and a few races in particular and then working backwards from there the, the training was was put into the program and then you know the, the media and sponsorship obligations and the travel and all the other obligations these days family commitments and sponsorship obligations are the priority I train for for mental health and, and for general well-being and at certain times of the year the last few years in particular in the southern hemisphere summer I've been able to get in good shape because of no traveling and, and I'm able to race early in the year. So that's kind of the pattern I've, I've followed. But you're right, mate. There, I would be lying if I said to you that there's not a mental shift that you need to make because it was, you know, for a long time it was it was plan A. There was no plan B. It was, I was all in on A. So, you know, everything's structured around that. Whereas I, I think... You know, and every athlete does it differently, I guess, depending on your personality and the way you're wired. Some can just pull a Band-Aid off and retire, you know, go go cold turkey immediately. <laughs> I didn't want to do that. I wanted to stay involved and particularly because my daughter was coming up through the ranks and she's 15 this year, especially the last two years, I've been able to do some sort of training with her, which I really love. And and on on that sort of front, you you were winning races and world titles, you know, in the early well, 2000, 2006 and seven. What was it like? How's it shifted being a pro from then? I mean, like the proliferation, obviously, of social media, the intent of brands now to target influencers and and digital um, content around what they do versus when you probably very first started, you know, um, back in uh, the South Sydney, the Kernel days, it wasn't as obviously as, as um, pronounced. But how's that shift and how have you seen the shift from where you started to, to when you are now where it's it's all about what you can create outside the course as well? Yeah, well, I think it's just a, a natural evolution, if you will. Things evolve and the world we live in is evolving. And, and off the back of that, you often see business and sport and, and life changed. So, you know, I guess back in my day, the technology around performance and equipment isn't what it is now. I think we've seen huge leaps and bounds. I mean, let's look at the the big shoe debate that's gone on the last two years with mm-hmm. with with the new foam and the carbon um, plates in the shoes. And, um, you know, there's a lot of debate about that, which we, we can leave for another day. But also you look at bikes, um, ceramic bearings, the wheels are, are different thickness, tyres, aerodynamics, all those things. I mean, race suits, you know, are not crinkled anymore and, and flapping around in the wind. They're fitted in their different material wetsuits, everything. I think the technology around equipment has changed. Um, the technology around wearable technology and how we track training and, and implement training programs has changed. And the way we consume sport has changed and, and we perceive it. I mean, there was a time when 
you know, companies had a really creative marketing department who would contact you with an idea around creating content, whether it be for print media or uh, perhaps a TV commercial, um, website content, that, that kind of thing. Um, and they would have a clear plan and a strategy set out. That's all become the athlete's job now. Uh, marketing departments just say, we want you to do it all. So I think the athletes these days have a greater responsibility than certainly at the height of my career. I know I really only had to concentrate on training and racing, um, making sure that my equipment was the best of what was available, um, you know, the best of the day that was available at the time and and making sure that I, I trained well, you know, and, and I, I checked all those boxes around performance with regard to training, recovery and and those sorts of things, race schedule. Um, it is a different world now with the social media and, you know, it started with, I guess, Facebook and then Twitter, now Instagram. Now you've got to do Instagram stories and you've got to have a YouTube, <laughs> a YouTube channel and you've got to have a, a content gatherer, for want of a better expression, following you and following your every move. And look, it's better and worse, I think. I, I think like all things, there's a, there's a teething process and I'm all about authenticity. I just like things that are real and and I see the value in people who are interested getting, I guess, uh, a look behind the curtain or inside the locker room sort of perspective. Um, I know as a sports fan myself, I love those documentaries around boxing in the lead up to the fight. Um, mm-hmm. And also, you know, we've all been on aeroplanes, the, the sport channel, there's, there's always documentaries about different football teams or Super Bowl runs or, or whatever. Um, I watched one recently about Liverpool FC, which, who are my team in the EPL. And, you know, as fans, I don't think we can ever get enough content. Um, so there's definitely a mind shift that needs to take place from the athlete in terms of this is the way forward. Sport, mm-hmm. is, sport is now a business. It's consumable and it's a very competitive marketplace. You know, sports are competing against each other for, for our attention. Um, mm. And is it? Um, and it's obviously there's 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 that shift, but um, you know there's the the need now, isn't it? Like you to be a professional in triathlon, you've got to have, as you said, your, your content gatherer, your base is covered. You've got to have people who can help you out. Otherwise, you know you'll get there'll be someone around the corner who can do it, and and that's where the money and the sponsors lie. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I think in my opinion, there will always be a place. For a, for a diamond in the rough, like an old school, someone who just is not interested in that and is true to themselves and, and just wins a lot of races. Um, but I think you also have to see what the market is dictating and what the demand is. And if, if the demand is there for fans and people who love the sport, who follow the sport, they want uh, 24-7 engagement, you have to meet that demand, otherwise somebody else will. Um, and that's, yep. that's just supply and demand. That's pure economics. I think that's um, – so, yeah, you know, you have to – I think it's a challenge for the athletes uh, developing this content and, and bringing it to bear but also being authentic around it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's nothing worse than watching one of those reality shows when you know people are just going overboard and, and not really being themselves. I think that the key is the people who do it well do it really well. They – they are entertaining while still being themselves and being true to who they are and who they've always been. And and that's a tough balance. It's a tough balance and it's one that each athlete needs to arrive at in their own time. Um, But it's certainly the way forward because 
you know, the traditional ways of watching sport are changing. Um, you can stream things on devices. People want 24-7 entertainment. Um, and, you, you know, you have to be able to deliver that. And, and as a sport, if we want to compete with the other sports, you know, that's what we're up against. So that's, I guess that's what we need to do. We need to look internally at what we can do better to, to provide that and, and grow our own fan base and grow the viewership of, of our sport. Which I think we'll we'll come to that in in just a minute. The Collins Cup and and that sort of injection of at least capital to make it work is is somewhere where it's going. You were always really, I think, very controlled in what you did, um, both when you're on the course and when you're off the course as well. And then you and I crossed paths a number of times doing a number of different things uh, at the height of your career. You know, up until eleven, twelve, etc. Um, how hard is it to edit? yourself when something is going on that you're really not happy with or something's happening um, that you really just want to, you know, climb up and say, hey, this is this the real story, but you know that there's that understanding between sponsors and yourself and 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 just towing a straight line. How hard is it to, you know, to, to edit yourself from those comments? Uh, that's a good question. Again, I guess it depends on your personality and what's important to you. I mean, what was always important to me was getting the absolute best out of myself on the race course and representing myself in a consistent and honest fashion and not being anybody I wasn't and, and not embarrassing my family. I mean, I just wanted to do the right thing, um, not because I thought it was the right thing to do, because that's just the way I was, I guess. I mean, I, ne I never tried to be anybody who I wasn't. I know there are a number of times when things would be said in the media or, um, you know, you'd hear rumours and... and you know, close friends or even people I didn't even know would say, well, that's clearly not true. You should defend yourself. And I just thought, well, you know, there, there's so much that I'm actually trying to focus on here to to get my outcome. And my outcome was performing to the best of my ability in the major races. Mm -hmm. These other things, whilst they could be annoying, it's, it's an annoyance that passes. And yep. what's not going to pass is my desire to always you know, get the best out of myself racing. That That was... What was important? That was they were my KPIs. That you know that was the outcome I was after. So I really it's a, it's a cliche. People say, "Oh, you got to control what you can control," and you know what does that mean? I, I think it means in the heat of battle or in a race or when you're in heavy training, just really prioritize the things that are important. And that's that's what I always tried to do. I mean, there were times when yeah you. You would hear something, or, or or a sponsor would contact you and say, "Oh, you've read this. Is that true?" And you think, "Geez, that nothing could be further from the truth." And <laughs> I mean, you know, when when asked, I would always just give my honest, I guess, input on whatever I was being asked about. And you know, everyone's entitled to their opinion. I I just thought I'm just going to get about my business. You know, mm. um, I always have felt that actions speak louder than words. You know, deeds deeds not words. I think is the saying. So. You know, at the end of the day, there can be some sort of, um, I guess, you can get embroiled in controversy and, and whatever, but I just thought, you know, what's going what's gonna to hold true and, and stand the test of time is just results. And, and mm -hmm. really, I, I guess early on I learned I, what my own, I guess, KPIs were and, and what I would be happy and satisfied with 20 or 30 years from now looking back at my career and was that being the loudest on social media or was that shouting people down who had a different opinion? Not really. It was trying to get the most out of myself and being proud that 
I think I squeezed every drop out of the lemon. And I think, again, it just comes mm-hmm. down to... Can I... Yeah, go on. Sorry. Sorry, taking you back to 2000... Uh, this will just segue into this, but taking you back to 2009 when you win the, the Ironman World Championship. And then the following year, there was... Um, I think you were fourth in 2010. Am I correct? I'm yes. pretty sure I'm good on that. Yep. Um, and then there was that big... Now, then there was the not the rumor, but there was just the talk around the triathlon world that um, Craig Alexander can't ride a bike at Kona. He can't ride, um, which you know is always it's always it, like Kona is just always speculation, isn't it? I mean, we can never really understand how everyone's feeling, but there was that sense that after t- two thousand and ten, that you weren't as strong a bike rider as everybody else. How hard was it for you to put a sock in it then and say nothing? Obviously, two thousand eleven, you came out and destroyed the field in what was in you know and i saw a number of i saw all your victories i would have thought um and that was my favorite one to watch um because of the the build-up and what people were saying so for you how hard was it in in 2010 after that fourth place which is again no disgrace goodness but then people saying oh well crowy can't ride yeah well i think it, it comes down to again i mean people are entitled to their opinion i, I had watched mark allen win six times by being a little conservative on the bike. I mean, mm-hmm. you don't you don't run a 240 in a very hot climate on an undulating course if you ride to 100% of your capacity. You just don't. Mm. So, again, some of the best advice I ever got was get as fit as you can and as good as you can in all three disciplines and then race races like Kona or any hot, humid race as smart as you can, mm-hmm. um, which means not going – pedal to the metal the whole way. Um, so, again, you know, I'm not going to say it, – it's funny because it feels like a long time ago and yeah. I'm, trying to, I'm trying to cast my mind back. I'm sure there were times when I read things that upset me or um, think, oh, no, that's not true. That couldn't be further from the truth. But, again, a lot of it was driven by people who had their own agendas to misdirect, yeah. misdirect you know, to direct attention away from their own weaknesses. And, and I understood that. And I just thought, I remember just thinking the best way is not to respond verbally. It's to respond, again, deeds, not words. If if you're not happy with what someone's saying, then prove them wrong. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's not debating. We don't we don't get points in triathlon for debating well. You, If you want to <laughs> prove people wrong, you've got to do it on the race course. So, yeah. I mean, that's what I did. I, and, and people who were making those comments, they, they couldn't have known what my strategy was, the way I wanted to ride the bike. And I also didn't know, I mean, I had the the situation going on with a bike sponsor who, you know, 2009 was an interesting year because it was the year that a lot of the bike companies released their specific non-UCI legal time trial bikes or the super bikes as we called them. And, mm-hmm. and the company I was with at the time, Orbea, didn't have one. And I was promised one for 2010 and they didn't deliver it. And I just sucked it up and rode the old bike at a, a, a considerable disadvantage. Didn't say anything again, just went and raced and got fourth. And, and again, I'm not saying that's the reason I got fourth. I, I, I thought I had a pretty solid day that day. I didn't have a world championship winning day, but it was a good day. Yeah. But I just felt moving forward and, and conducting my own wind tunnel testing with independent people, not people from my bike company or my bike sponsor's company or representatives from other bike companies who, who might have been trying to lure me away, I got independent experts to come to the wind tunnel with me. And we saw the difference. Um, 
And the difference when we went to the wind tunnel in July 2011 was that had I ridden other brands and and the two brands I took to the wind tunnel were Cervelo and uh, Trek, Mm -hmm. Um, it was going to be 12 to 13 minutes difference. Um, Wow. At the same heart rate, at the same output. That's how much air. And and it wasn't all the bike, don't get me wrong. If you remember – from 2007 to 2010, I, I used to wear a standard road helmet on the bike. Yes. So 2011 was also the year I wore an aero helmet for the first time. So that, that contributed. And I just got more precise with my attention to the aerodynamics. I didn't have a race suit. I got a better fitting race suit. So something that just wasn't flapping around all over the place. I started storing more nutrition on my bike and not in my pockets, on the, on the back of my jersey. Just, just little things like that, drink bottle placement. All the things that the pros these days from top to bottom in the field just do as part of their preparation, it wasn't really a done thing back then. Um, mm-hmm. So how satisfying was 2011 when you came back to Kona, stomped around the course, um, you know, and, and put all those, I guess, all those conversations to, to, to bed? Is out of your three Ironman or Kona victories, is which one stands out as the best? Oh, that, that is a very tough question to answer. It's like asking who's your favorite child, you know, because <laughs> sometimes it's Lucy, sometimes it's Austin, sometimes it's Lani, but um, it was very satisfying, absolutely. Um, and for all the reasons you mentioned, um, not, not so much that I felt I, was, I shut people up, but, you know, I think any athlete's dream is to be versatile and to be able to win in a number of different ways. The first three times I finished on three or four times I finished on the the podium or in the top the top five I I swam in the first half dozen people biked close to the people who I thought were the main contenders and a few uber bikers went off the front and then tried to run in the low 240s Um, that was my mode of operation and it worked until it didn't work so then to to go off the front on the bike with two or three other guys in 2011 and have the second quickest bike that day and I think for a long time it stood as one of the quickest bike times um, at, at that race on the Big Island in the World Championships. Um, it's certainly one of the, it was one of the top five bike splits for the next five or six years afterwards. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very satisfying because I think you're just showing another string to your bow and for me it was like um, – Self-validation. I always felt I was a yeah. well-rounded triathlete. I always did. I thought I could win in a number of different ways. If there was a little breakaway in the swim, I felt I could tack onto the back of it. If, you know, some of the main contenders decided to take it up the road on the bike, I felt I could join that party as well and then still finish with a with a 240 or a 242. And, um, you know, that was always my goal. But it's, it's satisfying. It's one thing to plan for it and to dream about it, but to actually have it happen on the day that it's meant to happen, yeah, is, is really satisfying. Yeah, and obviously the um, you know that that golden period that you're involved in also was a golden period for us Aussies with McCormack and Pete Jacobs, and there was just victory after victory after victory. And now it seems like it's the German national championships when we go to Kona. Um, is do you see any sort of I guess movement in that, or are we sort of just going around again this year for uh, you know for another victory lap for the, for that country? Yeah, it's. Look, I, at that race in particular, because I think experience plays such a big part, as does building up a few years of physical and mental durability. There's certainly a mental toughening up that takes place the more you race there. 
And the, the training that's required, not only, I guess, the endurance, but your body, the, the metabolic change, your body's ability to burn fat rather than carbohydrate. Um, and you see it in all endurance sports. I think we saw it in cycling with a lot of the guys who come from the velodrome. It takes them years and years before they have the ability to win a three-week tour. Um, but they can win a one-day race. So, and, and that's just your body's ability to be able to use its built-in fat stores as fuel when you can't ingest enough carbohydrates either within one day or day-to-day in a three-week tour. It's, it's just a metabolic process. Um, your body becomes very efficient at burning fat at a high percentage of your threshold. So at close to race pace or at race pace in Ironman, the well-trained athletes and the ones who have a few years of counter experience are able to mobilize and use fat as the fuel, not just carbohydrate. Mm. And that's just a trained effect. So mm. I think in a race like Kona, yeah, you always defer to the results from the previous year until further notice. And, <laughs> you know, I'm, I think, yeah, I guess it will be like the German. I mean, for, for me, the big favorites again will be Jan in particular, Sebi. I think Patrick could, could make, have some sort of a renaissance after a, an off year last year. And I think we can all forgive an athlete for that. It's such a hard race. Um, particularly, he was two-time defending champ going in last year. So no doubt he just had a, an unbelievably busy 12 months leading up to the race. Yeah. Um, and I think people underestimate the effect that that can have on you and how that can wear on you month after month leading into a big race, not only physically but also mentally. Um we had a little chat about that prior to coming uh, and pressing the big red button. Um, obviously, we tried to uh, catch up with you down in Geelong a couple of weeks ago when you were down there racing, but it's um, the the crowy schedule is a, is a manic one. Um, obviously, that's part and parcel. And you know, I've uh, working with you at a couple of big events and watching people lining up to you know get a handshake, a selfie, a pat on the back, etc. That takes it out, doesn't it? And, and and you know, new world champions, popular world champions, you know, particularly the likes of Fredino and Langer, because of the the popularity of the sport in Germany, it's a thing to master, isn't it? Absolutely, and I think for those guys in particular, I think it's another level again. I mean. The sport is so popular in Germany and in Europe. To be a German Ironman world champion, um, yeah, I think it would be another level above what I anything that I ever experienced. So you do need a lot of good people around you, and you and you look; those guys do have it. Do have that? They have a good entourage of um, really great people, family, and, and and trusted advisors and friends. And, and I had the same too. You need that. You need people to share the load and shoulder the load with you. I just think for me it got to a point where I was I was getting older. I was, you know, I won kind of the, the last time I was 38. So the next couple of times I went, I was 39 and then 40. And it just gets harder. You, you're not as resilient. You can't stand around at the expo like you used to. You can't be out on this, out in the sun on your feet um, as much. It, it, it does get – the margin for error gets smaller. So, um, yeah, I just – but it's something you've got to uh, – just embrace as well because it does come it's part and parcel of of being successful and having sponsors and, and that in essence that's what sponsorship's all about companies associate with you because of i guess your performances and, and also what they think you represent and but underneath and underlying all of that is that they want you to move the needle for them it's about selling stuff so and that that's about engaging with people engaging with their target market so that's 
meeting people, talking, being at the expo, having photos, um, I guess inspiring people. So that's all part and, part, part and parcel of your job. And you need to find ways to, to manage it for sure because it, it can get out of hand. But I think if you look at the people who have had consistent success at the bigger races, not just Kona, but 70.3 Worlds or Olympics or, or anything, Generally speaking, I think they'd have a great team around them who, who really help them manage their time well. And um, you know, people like Jan come to mind. Rennie, you know, Rennie's got a great team around her, and and you just have to manage things. But it's part of your job. Like any job, there's things that are easier to deal with and things that are harder to deal with. And there's no point putting your head in the sand and ignoring them or beating your chest and crying about it. You've got to embrace it and deal with it the best you can because it's going to be there whether you like it or not. And, and you know what? It's it's actually a nice thing when yeah. I was going to say it must it must be some fun in it though. Hey, mate, when when people come up to you and and say that you know they watched you in a YouTube video fifteen years ago and you you're the reason they started in the sport and they've lost this weight or it's turned their life around or you know that that that's very humbling and it's nice to think that something you've done and, and let's be honest, you do it for for your own reasons. Um, but I think as you get older and more philosophical and, you know, people often ask you the legacy question or those sorts of things and you, you think about, well, what is that? I mean, I think, I think impacting people in a positive way. I think that's, mm. and that, 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 that's an honour to be able to say that you've done that and um, you've started people on a, on a new journey or they've turned their life around and you had some small part in, in doing that. Mate, it is very nice. It's very nice and I think particularly as I've gotten older, I've enjoyed it more and more because, you know, you come to think, well, what was it all about? What was it all for? I mean, obviously I loved it and then it mm. became um, a job and, you know, it provided a very nice lifestyle for my family and a, and a good living. But I think we all want to ha- have something deeper than that and add more value somewhere. Um, I think, you know, we all strive for that or yearn for that and, and I certainly did. And, and to hear that and have people come up to you and tell you about their journey and, um, yeah, it's, it's, it is very nice, mate, and it's very humbling. Well said. And on that note, I think that's that's where we can leave it. Uh, Crowey, always brilliant chatting to you, mate. The insight is uh, first class and uh, we look forward to uh, what you can come up with. I love it. Thank you very much, Craig Alexander. 